What a great morning to come together and worship, be able to sing our God's praises and gather together and um, hear his word taught. Enjoy one another's company and encouragement. and So we're a blessed people. If you're a guest rather than a covenant member, then welcome to you as well. My name is Matt Kirstein. I'm one of the pastors, one of the elders here at Disciples Church. Uh, Pastor Joshua is our primary preaching elder, and he's currently on sabbatical. It's near the end of his sabbatical. It's a pre-planned sabbatical for rest and study, and, and so he's... Uh, coming back soon, as you heard in the announcement time. So we're very much looking forward to that. It's my joy to lead us in the word this morning. So let's pray. Lord, we are so blessed. We deserve no good thing. And yet you are merciful and gracious and good to us. Despite our sin and unworthiness, You are good to us. We're thankful for that. You are good, God. Who you are, all of who you are. You are the one true God. Triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. We worship you. We praise you. We want to know you. And we want to be unified in you. Pray that the teaching, the preaching of your word this morning would be helpful to your people. Your word is powerful. Your word is powerful. We're thankful that you've given us truth. We love you, Lord. It is only because of Christ that we can be redeemed, reconciled, and given eternal life to enjoy you forever. So we pray because of Christ. Amen. The passage we read together earlier in our service this morning was Psalm 145. That is the psalm that we'll be working through today. In my prior two sermons on Psalm 130 and Psalm 51, we didn't have time to focus in on a few of the elements that both of those psalms contained. Therefore, I've been eager to get to this third sermon. The title of the sermon today is a song of praise, theology proper, and unity. Perhaps you are familiar with what praise is and what unity is, but theology proper may be a new term to some in the room. By definition, theology is the study of God, but commonly it's used to speak of all biblical doctrine, biblical truth. So theology proper then specifies more clearly the study of God himself, God, his attributes, his work. Theology proper. Psalm 145 is a portion of scripture, as we will see, that praises God and joyfully considers his being and some of his attributes and work. As in my previous sermon, there's too much content in this whole psalm for us to speak of every line or point, but we'll hit on what we can. Now, who wrote Psalm 145? If you have your Bibles there, you'll see the title given in the psalm is a song of praise of David. So the same David we saw in ruin and in repentance in the past is the one who brings us this mighty latter psalm. And also note that this is actually the final psalm written by David. 
It's not the last that we have in the collection there, but it's the final psalm written by David himself. Theologian James Montgomery Boy says, What do you think should be the subject of David's last psalm? If you know anything at all about David, you will expect that this great Old Testament figure would be praising God. Psalm 145 is indeed a monumental praise psalm, a fit summary of all David had learned about during a lifetime of following hard after the Almighty. So David finishes his psalm writing, focused on God and praising Him. Rightly so, of course. Another interesting thing about this psalm is that it is the last of the acrostic psalms. An acrostic psalm is one in which each verse or group of verses, as in Psalm 119, begins with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an intentional and poetic way of writing. In the case of Psalm 145, most Hebrew texts lack a verse for one of the latter letters, which is why the psalm only has 21 verses instead of 22. A line has been added in some translations to the end of verse 13 to account for this missing letter, but it's usually been bracketed in your Bibles there, signifying that it is an addition. The skipping of a letter in an alphabetical psalm does happen. For example, in Psalm 37, a letter is lacking, and three are lacking in Psalm 25. So the order isn't always strictly kept in these types of psalms. Theologian John Gill says on these things, Psalm 145 seems to have been a psalm David took great delight in, that it may be that he often repeated it and sung it, as it was made by him with great care, in a very cautious manner, for it is wrote in an alphabetical order, and likely it was composed in this form that it might be more easily committed to memory. It seems to have been written by David after the Lord had granted him all of his requests that he would put up in the preceding Psalms and had given him rest of all from his enemies and turned his prayers into praise. For this Psalm is holy praise from one end to another. End quote. Think about that for a moment. David has been through wicked sin utter despair and great repentance, and now having received the grace of our Lord, he turns to focus on God and praise Him passionately. And we see this as we begin right in our opening verses, verse 1 and 2. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you. And praise your name forever and ever. This is serious praise happening here. I will extol you, my God and King. Extol means to praise enthusiastically. Praise is worship. It's acknowledging God to be who He truly is. Real praise is fueled by sound doctrine. It acknowledges God to be God rightly. In this, David rightly sees God for who he is on his throne, my God and King. This is a significant statement from the mouth of Israel's king. It acknowledges that God is 
the king of kings. God is the ultimate king of all creation and all people. God is my king and your king because he made us and he rules over us. Whether you acknowledge his rule or not. David knows, so he rightly acknowledges God on his throne with sound theology and enthusiastic praise. And this enthusiastic praise is not occasional or forgetful or a short term. No, verse 2, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Every day, every day. David is not going to merely praise God on the Sabbath, though one day in seven is given specifically for that purpose. Rather, he is going to praise God every day, Sunday through Saturday, and forever and ever. This goes beyond this first life. David knew, like all those who were God's redeemed, he would still be worshiping God once David leaves this creation unto heaven, and then in the new creation, forever and ever. Christian, you will be worshiping God forever also, with all the other redeemed saints from all tribes, tongues, and nations, and times in history. Christ's bride praising him in unity and purity. We get an amazing glance at this in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with psalm branches in their hands and crying out aloud with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's awesome. David, rightly so, praises God every day. He praises the King of Kings who is on the throne. Practically then, we need to learn from David's example here. Where this is lacking, we must ask, why don't we diligently praise God in the here and now, every day? Not just when the saints gather, or when we happen to think about Him during our days. No, we must prioritize this. Do we want to focus on God and praise Him more than we do? We must ask ourselves this. Personally, I find that I can get so busy with the doing of other things. Or I can get so easily distracted by hobbies and other interests in the temporary that I'm too easily not like David here. I'm not always praising God consistently throughout the day. There needs to be repentance from that. God is the treasure He should be praised rightly and consistently. And it should be our joy to do that. One thing I realized for myself is that technology, which surely can be used for good, has been at times taking me away from focusing on God and praising Him. I realized, for example, that in the morning, the first thing I would do is reach for my phone. And I'd turn it on and 
I would turn off the alarm and then check my emails and check the news headlines and check social media, etc. From the moment my eyes would open, the burden of the business of work and the duty of ministry and the distraction of the world was what I was focused on. From the moment my eyes opened. So this convicted me. I've been working on a new course in repentance. I've wanted to focus on God before I focus on myself or the church or the world. I want the Lord to be in practical terms to my desire, the strength of my heart, my portion. This isn't about just checking a first thing box. I want him to be the ultimate focus even when I'm doing other things throughout the day as well. But in regard to the morning, recently I've enjoyed many mornings of engaging God in worshipful prayer before I look at my phone or even get up from bed. It's so awesome. I found real joy in this. My alarm goes off and I reach over to turn off the alarm without picking up the phone. And then I lay there and I pray a prayer of praise. Maybe I would sing too if Nikki weren't still asleep next to me. Maybe I'll try that and see how it goes. Maybe she'll join in and we'll get a chorus going. But in this prayer time, it's so sweet. I pray things like, God, you are awesome and sovereign. I am your creation and I exist for your glory. You deserve all praise, all obedience and thanks. Thank you for working your plan For your glory. Thank you for giving me and the other believers you have woken up today another day to live for your name and plan. You are merciful and steadfast in love. You are just. You are all powerful and wise. You deserve all the glory. So please cause me to honor you today. Thank you for Christ. The only way for redemption and eternal life with you. Thank you for causing me to trust in Christ. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. You are the one true God. You are on the throne. Amen. It's something like that. A variety of those kinds of things. Focused on God and praising Him. Church, it's awesome. I'm laying there, not thinking about the work that I have to do myself or anything else that fills my brain. No, I'm laying there and I'm thinking about and praising God. From the moment I awake, it's a sweet time. Now, pray for me to be consistent in things like this. I do not do this every day as David models. There are mornings the phone wins out. Something urgent I'm thinking about immediately that I think I need to get to before that prayer. So pray for me and I will pray for you too. With David, let's be able to say, every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Consider what ways you can make this true for you. Share your thoughts with others here and ask for encouragement in this. Now, God deserves our everyday praise. Of course he does. Look at verse 3. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Yes and amen. Great is the Lord. David turns here to focus on the attributes of God. Some of God's attributes and works are woven all throughout this psalm. We'll see that as we continue. This is theology proper. 
When David says, great is the Lord, this is a declaration of a summary of God's attributes and work. All who God is and all that he does can be summed up as great. And his greatness is unsearchable. There is no limit to God's greatness. This is why God gets praise forever and ever. Because there's no limit to his greatness. We never run out of things to praise him for. His being. There's no limit to the greatness of who he is. Let us be humbled by this. Finite creatures like us cannot comprehend his greatness even. Dr. James Dozell came to Disciples Church earlier this year to teach on the attributes of God. We do these conferences, by the way, great conferences. Bring in theologians to help encourage us. It was a great conference. And we're having another one coming up. We strongly encourage you to, to go. It's very important. Be there, learn, grow in your faith, be encouraged. Be with the saints from many churches. It's a great time. That one's coming up in late October. One of my favorite pastors and theologians is coming from Southern California. Uh, The elders are excited to have him. But in this prior conference, Dr. Dozal, he, he explained that we cannot comprehend God. We can apprehend God, but we cannot comprehend God. It was very helpful, so let me explain. To apprehend something in this usage of the word is to be able to know it rightly, know it truly. So we, finite humans, we can and must know God rightly. We must know him truly. We should apprehend, we should correctly know of God, his greatness, his attributes, his work. But we cannot comprehend God. To comprehend something in this usage of the word is to be able to know it fully, exhaustively. We mere humans cannot exhaustively know God. We cannot comprehend all of who God is. He is limitless and infinite, for example. So limited and finite beings like us cannot comprehend him. That is, we cannot know him exhaustively. Therefore, as David declares in verse 3, God's greatness is unsearchable. Now with that clarity, let us strive all of our days to know God rightly. Let us be zealous in growing in our knowledge of God. Let us not follow the trend of having a watered-down understanding. Where God's word has spoken, let us not be uninformed or worse yet, ill-informed. Let us learn about God from his word diligently. But let us be humbled by the fact that he is so high and above and superior to us in every way that we cannot know him exhaustively. And praise God for this. We need a One, the one who transcends us to rule and care for us. So who is God? Theology done rightly tells us that God is the almighty creator, sustainer and ruler of everything. He is perfect in the standard by which all things are measured. David's theology is at play here. David proclaims, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Yes and amen. Now, a great God, the one true God, has this truth proclaimed, testified to. Look at verses 4 through 7 now. 
one generation shall commend your works, God, to one another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. I will meditate. They will speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. In these verses, first I want us to note that there's, we're now introduced to a third party. We had David and God, of course. Others in creation are now mentioned. Now, who are they, though? They are the, those who are blessed and praise God in faith. Look at our verses. They worship God. And we're going to see something very interesting in the remainder of this psalm. We will see something very distinct about the ones in creation who praise God in faith. It is they that God is gracious to. Not because they first praised him, but because of his choice to be gracious to them. But there's a connection there. God is gracious to them and they're praising him. There's a Real union and relationship there. Look at verse 20 for a moment. It tells us that the Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. Verse 20, like the rest of Scripture, tells us that there's ultimately two kinds of people. Those whom God is redeeming unto eternal life, and those who remain in their sin unto eternal punishment. So when we see the ones whom God is blessing and who are rightly honoring God in praise, we know those are the ones who, as verse 20 states, love God. Those are the ones God has chosen before time by His will alone to save and cause their love for Him. It is the redeemed who faithfully testify, enjoy generation to generation. We considered in prior sermons that repentant, saved people are testifiers. We get the high privilege of telling the world about God. We get the awesome joy of sharing the gospel and teaching sound doctrine to others, teaching truth in accordance to God's word. The saved are blessed to glorify God, and a major part of that is declaring Him to others, seeking to make disciples of Jesus. So David has now highlighted the singular, himself, and the plural, the other redeemed ones, meaning he's lifting up the awesome reality of the unity true believers have in Christ. We all get to sing God's praises, unified, humbled, blessed, And that is what David is declaring here. That's God's plan. His will of decree is that they, the redeemed by grace, shall pour forth your fame, the fame of your goodness, abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Church, every single psalm I've walked through with you this summer has included this example, an imperative for us to be united and consistent in biblical truth telling See our example yet again today. Believers' hearts are to be so full of the love of God, of love for God. Our minds should be so full of the truth of God and our wills so full of zeal for God that we are diligent to rightly meditate on 
as verse 5 mentions, and boldly speak of God and His attributes, His works, His gospel. Let us increase in this. We are seeing in these verses the focus on God's great work. Surely God's work of creation show Him as worthy of thanks and praise. Surely His work of sustaining creation show Him as worthy of thanks and praise. But in light of this being a song of praise from the redeemed, what is in view in the psalm is more so His work of the gospel of grace. God's work of the gospel most surely shows Him as worthy of thanks and praise. In this line of thought, theologian John Gill calls us to think about God's, quote, mighty acts of grace in redeeming his people from all of their sins and from the curse of the condemnation of the law and from the wrath to come. And to think about the victories which he has obtained over sin, Satan, the world, and death. Yes, and amen. Believers in all centuries from the first time of the promise of the Redeemer into eternity, shall commend God's works to one another, declare His mighty acts, speak of His might, of the might of His awesome deeds, and sing aloud of His righteousness, and so on. Let us declare God and His gospel. The next thing to note in these verses is again the theology proper. In addition to his work, several attributes are mentioned here. God's attributes of his glorious splendor, his majesty, his greatness, his fame, his goodness, his righteousness, they're all mentioned in these four verses. This is so good. David rightly knows the one true God and worships him in truth. As we move on in our psalm, the praises and focus on God continues. Verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious to the merciful Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He's made. Now Psalm 130 and Psalm 51 had the same praises that verse 8 has. The Lord is gracious and merciful. Indeed He is. All of our hope rests on the mercy, the grace of God. We cannot earn or contribute to salvation. We cannot earn or contribute to redemption, reconciliation, or even perseverance. We are utterly dependent on God to be gracious and merciful. So this is a praise again from the saints. We, fallen humanity, all men, women, boys, and girls deserve wrath, not His goodness, grace, mercy, patience, and love. We only deserve His wrath. But in light of the gospel, to those he has chosen, he is good. And because of this, he is slow to anger. And in of himself, by his plan, by his will alone, he has chosen to do what is needed to be able to be gracious to all those that he wills. These are the ones we saw in verse 20. The ones that he causes to love him. These are the ones the whole psalm is referring to. Instead of cutting off life on this earth, which creation deserves based on the fall, he is slow to anger, patiently and wisely carrying out his plan to save all those that he chose before creation to save. 
In his plan of salvation, God is surely abounding in steadfast love. Abounding in steadfast love. He loves the elect with an unchangeable love. That is ultimately what steadfast is getting at. In Ephesians 1, it tells us God knew and loved the elect individually before each were even created, before creation, before we ever existed. And he loves them unto remaining in an unchanging love, a steadfast love for his chosen ones from all eternity. That's such good news. We can never resist God's love. We can never change God's love. We can never get out of God's love. It is steadfast, eternal, unchanging. His love is what it is because it's based on an unchanging God. He never changes. This love is not based on factors outside of Him. His steadfast love is from His very being. So are you downcast, believer? Are you struggling? Are you sick? Are you in despair? Turn your mind and hearts to remember the love of God. The unchanging love of God. His love for you is not based on your performance. It's based on His perfect will. His eternal will. It's existed forever. And His steadfast alone is rest. True rest. Rest that causes faith, relief, joy, and perseverance. Turn away from sin and turn to the ever-present love of God and be restored. God is abounding in steadfast love. Amen? With that context, let's focus on verse 9 now. It said, the Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He's made. Now, in certain ways, God is good and merciful to all in creation. But we need to be careful to understand this rightly. First, we must know that none in creation deserve any good or mercy from God. That's fundamental. Yet, in Matthew 5.45, Jesus declares that God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is teaching there that God treats all of his creation better than they deserve, even the evil and unrighteous people. But we cannot push that truth, that true teaching, to mean something God's word doesn't teach, or push it to contradict God's word even. God is temporarily treating the reprobate. Those are the people who will never repent and trust in Christ. He is treating them with a measure of temporary goodness and temporary mercy, being that he hasn't yet or isn't yet fully pouring out his eternal wrath on them. What they experience now is surely better than it will be. And while this is the case, Scripture is clear about where they actually stand in his eyes. God has a righteous hatred for those in creation that he isn't saving. A hatred he is righteous to have because he created them. And they are guilty in sin. And they do not love him. 
They have not honored him as their creator. They have committed cosmic treason against the God who created them and owns them. Now this teaching is clear in scripture. Psalm 5 verses 4 and 6. You are not a God who delights in the wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And in Psalm 11.5, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked, the one who loves violence. God has a righteous hatred for those in creation that he isn't saving. That's what scripture teaches. Yes, temporarily he is good and merciful to them in ways that are common to all of creation. Not in salvific things. We're not talking about saving grace here. But this temporary mercy is the case because he is fulfilling his plan to save the elect. There are people yet to be saved that he intends to save. So he is forbearing the reprobate, holding back his wrath until all of his chosen ones are saved. That is the point of the often misunderstood third chapter of 2 Peter. However, time is running out on the reprobate wicked. 2 Peter 3.7 says that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. God's wrath is coming. His goodness and mercy and common things like sunshine and rain, etc., will cease for the unrepentant. With all of that established, though, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and His mercy is over all that He has made, is not actually focused on every single person to ever live, or every single thing in creation. Rather, it's focused on His good and merciful work in redeeming the chosen ones. There's qualification here. This is about the they, the believers. But Pastor Matt, you may be thinking, it says all. Indeed, the word all is there. But let us not forget that the focus of the blessing and the source of praise in context in this chapter is the repentant ones. The ones who truly love God. Pulling a verse out of context, it could seem, if you pull this verse out of context, that the all means all universally. But the rest of our chapter and the rest of Scripture informs us how to correctly understand verses like this, this verse. We've talked about this before around here. Words like all and the world have to be understood in light of God's truth, in light of the whole counsel of God. We must ask, who are the all being spoken of? Or who in the world is being spoken of? It's very common that these words do not mean all persons to ever live, or even all persons everywhere at that time. But rather, they're speaking of particular people All of them. Just a couple of the numerous examples of this in Scripture. Luke 2.1 says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
Again, out of context, that seems pretty clear. It must mean every single person to ever live. But did Augustus really expect that literally all of the world should be registered? Did they travel, say, to Australia and China and so on to number them? No, all of the world here doesn't literally mean all people throughout the whole world. Rather, it is the people within the reach of Caesar's empire. All of the subjects of his kingdom should register. Look at Mark 13, 13. Jesus said, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So again, who's the all? Jesus took on flesh and was a human. Does he hate Christians? Of course not. Jesus is talking to his followers here. The first audience are his disciples, and by implication, believers after them as well, declaring that Christians will be hated, persecuted. Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. If we take that to mean every single person to ever live will hate you, That doesn't work biblically. Clearly, that's not what this means. People who don't know you don't necessarily hate you. People who love you don't hate you. No, the all here doesn't mean all persons to ever live. Rather, it highlights that there there are people, believers will meet, that hate Christ and therefore hate you as a Christian. The all is speaking of unregenerate people generally, not every human to ever live. We could go on and on with verses to show this. This clarity on the words like all or all of creation or the world is very important in our Bible reading interpretation and what is called hermeneutics. The point is the Bible's teaching as a whole dictates the meaning of the words it contains. When Scripture uses the word all, we need to be very careful to let the immediate context and the full testimony of Scripture help us understand who the all is. As we read Psalm 145, we must know that the all who are blessed and praising God, they are the redeemed. Not every single human to ever live. Those who are receiving Blessing in light of this grace, those who are praising him in light of this grace, the saving grace, are the redeemed. Who is God truly and ongoingly good, gracious, merciful, and abounding in love to? The redeemed. The redeemed are the all in these verses of our chapter. David is speaking about those God is saving. Not only is that clear if we're careful in this chapter, but it is the teaching of the rest of Scripture, rightly understood. Therefore, verse 9, interpreted correctly, proclaims, The Lord is good to all those He is saving, and His mercy is over all those He is saving from the whole creation that He has made. As we read on, remember this point. Remember that David is a saved man talking about and praising the one true God and the others who are blessed for salvation as he is and praising God as he is, they too are the saved ones. Interpret these verses in light of the whole. We're going to sing a song when we close today. Our closing song is based on this psalm. 
This, that application applies there too. When the concepts from this chapter are written into that song, you remember as we sing those things, who is the all or all of creation that we're singing about? Verse 10 through 13 restate things that we've seen so far. Some repetition in praise is great. It emphasizes a genuineness and enthusiasm. And in this section, David also focuses on God's kingdom as well. Let's read those verses. All of your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all of your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. All other kingdoms have had or will have an end. Babylonian, Persian, Roman, and so on. But not God's kingdom. All other kingdoms have kings who are temporary, but not God's kingdom. God lives forever. He is, a, the, he is the living God. The truly eternal one. He rules forever. He is an everlasting king. And His dominion endures throughout all generations. This is such good news. This too is theology proper. It's woven in here. David knows God is sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, wise, and eternal. He truly is the King of kings, ruling eternally. The next verse states again, His grace for those who love Him. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. This is blessed reassurance. This is good news. Given our context, what we've seen is that the all here is those that God is saving. These blessings are true of the redeemed. John Gill says, this is to be understood of the subjects of Christ's kingdom, of which the psalmist is speaking who does that which no mortal king can do. A merely human king rises one up and depresses another, supports one and lets another fall, but the Lord upholds all his redeemed people with the right hand of his righteousness. Though they are liable to fall into sin and in many instances do fall and into various temptations and afflictions, yet he sustains and upholds them that they shall not fall finally and totally by sin, nor be overwhelmed and crushed by their heavy afflictions. The Lord raises and bears them up under all and comforts and refreshes them. End quote. Yes, and amen, church. This is good news for us. More good news in verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. These verses show us again who is in view, as does the rest of this chapter. Remember, Jesus is the bread of life. But for who? Only those who trust in Christ, the elect. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. 
Those who look to Christ, those who trust in him, he surely does satisfy the desire of all who love him. He is a good and merciful Savior. He provides all we need, that is, himself. He provides us himself. In verses 17 through 20, you see again and again how God is gracious to those he loves. The Lord is righteous in all of his ways and kind in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. David continues to sing God's praises here. And again, it's based on sound doctrine, theology proper. God's attributes, look, verse 17, righteousness. The Lord is righteous. Goodness, and God is kind. Verse 18, omnipresence. The Lord is near to all who call on him. Omniscience, to all who call on him. He knows all who call on him. Truthfulness, call on him in truth. Verse 19, holiness. He fulfills the desire of all who call, or excuse me, who fear him. Gracious, he also hears their cry and saves them. Verse 20, omnipotent and sovereign, the Lord preserves. Only a sovereign, omnipotent God can do that. The Lord preserves. Love, all who love him. Just, righteous, and wrath, all the wicked he will destroy. So many attributes, again, in just these four verses. So good. God is so good. See God's majesty in our passage today. See his holiness. He is so high and above us. David rightly knows the one true God. Sound doctrine through and through here. David sings God's praises based on sound theology proper. And as we come to our final verse of the chapter, David finishes like he started, but with an intentional change. Verse 21 My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Verse 1, I will extol. Verse 21, my mouth will speak the praise. But look at the next part of verse 21. Just as David said all throughout this psalm, he ends this song of praise in a righteous desire for unity in praising God rightly with other believers. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Again, does every single person ever to live bless God's holy name forever and ever? No. The all flesh here is qualified by our chapter and all of Scripture. He's talking about all believers, all those who trust in Christ, all the redeemed ones. Let us see then. David is not satisfied to be in this alone. David's desire that all of God's righteous, redeemed, made righteous, redeemed, join him in unity, in praising God in truth. The whole psalm is to declare his personal praise and honor God rightly and to call others to unity in this. We saw it over and over in our chapter. David knows that the righteous are not to be living alone alone. 
He knows the righteous have a faith that is not a private faith. It's not merely about him and God. No, the righteous, those with righteous faith, it includes the body of believers, Christ's body. Yes, our faith is personal, incredibly personal, but it is not private. We are part of Christ's body. We are, by definition, one of many. We are, by definition, not alone. We are, by God's design, called to join other believers in life as we know it. Accountable, known, living out the one another's. How fitting is it that the last line of David's last psalm is one that calls together God's people in unity to honor God rightly and to praise Him together forever and ever. Verse 21, Let all those who trust in Christ bless His holy name forever and ever. This is a glorious declaration that individuals are saved into unity, into community, into Christ's body, to love him together, to praise him together forever and ever. Church, I pray we welcome now what God has designed and what our future will surely be like. Unity with one another in Christ for his glory and our good. To close, all in the room must consider on account of this passage today. Do you rightly know the one true God? Do you love the one true God? Are you one that David is describing? Are you one who calls on the Lord in truth? Are you one who has Christian fear of him? who lives in unity with him and his people, are you one who loves him? The Lord preserves all who love him. But the wicked he will destroy. Is your heart repentant unto a truth-based love for Christ? Where Christ's righteousness has been credited to you. Your wickedness has been forgiven. Does your life show fruits of true faith, actual salvation? In Christ Jesus alone is forgiveness, redemption, eternal life for his glory and our good. In Christ alone are repentant believers reconciled into an eternally secure relationship with God in unity with other repentant believers. Christ is the good news. He is the only way, the true solution to our wickedness, our separation from God and others, the true solution to the wrath due us for our guilt and sin, the true solution to change us, to unite us to Him forever. The Lord is gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. 
all praise and honor, all glory to the one true God. Let's pray. Lord, we should be humbled by this chapter, this text. The clear declaration of who you are, many of your attributes, much of your work, most importantly, your gracious gospel work. We should be humbled by this. We should be humbled by the reality that there are clearly two types of people. As verse 20 says, those who love you and those who you will destroy. We should be humbled that you've chosen to save grace to any, for none deserve any good thing. But you've chosen to extend saving grace, affectious saving grace. And those are the all of creation who sing your praises. We love you, Lord. You are the great one. Your greatness is unsearchable. We love you in spirit and in truth. All because of Christ, because of the gospel. God the Son came, took on flesh, lived the perfect life that we cannot live, died the sacrificial death in place of the sinners that you're saving and rose again in victory. Victory in the great God, the victorious God. It's only by that gospel good news, it's only by the true Christ that we can be saved. Those who repent and trust in Christ, and we are so thankful for your work of mercy in us. We love you, Lord. We love you. Hear our song of praise to close as finite, mere humans looking to express our thanks and praise to you. We love you because of Christ. Made possible. Made it happen. Amen.